0: And you can keep your Bible there in um, 1 John chapter 4. Just keep your Bible there because that's going to be our text again today. I know it's a little hot in here, as it is every week. (laughs) But I just pray that you would bear with us and you would ignore the heat. And uh, let's get the heat of the Holy Spirit. And the heat of the word of God, let that pour upon us, and let us sweat holy drops of repentance and faith. Amen? Amen. 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 Last week, in the last two weeks, we've been in looking at the love of God, the love of God, and you know, it's, this is one of those studies that are far beyond, if I could use this term, far beyond my pay grade. How can I know the love of God in such detail? And we thank God for the Word of God, which gives us clear instruction on the love of God. If you have not been able to hear the last two messages, I strongly encourage you to go back to sermon audio and listen to them. Because today is going to be clearer if you've heard the two. Last two weeks we were in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And we looked at the love of God. We saw that there were three principles that we derive from our text in 1 John 4, 7. Principle number one was that God's love begins with God. Principle number two was that God's love is defined by God. And principle number three was was that God's love is given to the believers by God through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the specific kind of love that John writes about. And John writes about the agape love of God. And, and, you know, agape love of God, again, the principle here, is that it is love which centers in on moral preference. Put simply is this, God chose to love. God in his perfect moral being chose to love. He chose to cast his love on those that would come. When you see agape in the New Testament, it is always speaking to the divine love of God. And we talked about the different types. We talked about an heiress type of love, which is that romantic love we hear so much about, right? Oh, I'm in love with him. I'm in love with her. We talked about the phileo type of love, the phileo type of love, which is a general fondness, a general fellowship, a brotherly fellowship. But John uses specifically this agape form of love, God's moral preference, God's preferring to love. Have you ever thought of God that way? I know we hear a lot about God is love, God of love. But have you ever thought that God preferred to love? He preferred to love. I like in exploring the love of God to like climbing a mountain. It's very much like climbing a mountain. That despite the challenges of the climb and the higher we start going, we realize at a certain point that the summit peak wasn't what we thought it was. That the summit peak is, is higher yet still. This is like trying to understand the love of God. We're going higher, and we're going higher, and we're going higher. I remember years ago, many years ago, I climbed Mount Snow in in Vermont, and as we started out on the climb of Mount Snow, you know, we kept our eyes on what we thought was the summit, and we kept hiking, and a few hours into the hike, we got up there, and we only realized that the summit was behind the summit, and that we had a few more thousand feet to climb, right? But from the ground, what I thought was the top, wasn't the top. That's very much like the Word of God, and as it speaks to the love of God. The higher we climb, the higher it becomes. And to explore this subject, and come to the knowledge And to know the knowledge regarding God's love. It's not achievable. We're never going to know it in totality. Our finite minds cannot grasp this. But there are things that scriptures give us. That enable us to understand in some limited measure. What is that love of God. And I think many Christians do a great disservice to themselves when they think they know everything there is to know about the love of God. Well, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if asked to define that or explain that in more detail, it couldn't. You know, every time, love of God is like the grace of God. The more you look at the grace of God, the more you realize, I don't understand the grace of God with my human limited mind. I might be able to articulate what the grace of God is, but articulating it is very different than knowing it. So we're going to tread slowly and deliberately regarding this subject and attempt to find truths in our scripture today. And we're going to be looking today at 1 John 4 verses 8 through 11. And I really hope that after church today, you'll go home and you'll contemplate and you'll meditate upon these passages. And that you will come to a place to find a more deep, profound truth in the love of God. So today we're going to answer four questions. Four questions that are raised in our text. And I want you to, if you're taking notes, to get these four questions. Number one, in what way is God love? We want to answer that question, in what way is God love? The second one. In what way is the love of God manifested uh, in believers in Christ? Thirdly, how did God love believers? How did God love believers? How did he love believers? And lastly, the fourth question, how should believers respond to this love? How should believers Respond to this love. These are four critical questions that we want to begin to answer from our text today. So look at me at the first verse we're going to explore, verse 8. And let's answer the question, in what way is God love? 1 John 4, 8 reads this, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And John clearly states here, God is love. Boy, that seems to be the one verse that the world seems to know. But isn't God love? Well, John would say, yeah. God is indeed love. And this agape love, as we saw last week, originates with God. It is defined by God. By, by the way, that's an important point. It is defined by God, not by the world. So it is defined by God. And God's love is consistent with all of his other attributes. So God is love. God is not solely love. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is moral excellence. God is wise and is the source of all wisdom. He is the source of all truth. Hey, here's one for you. God is judgment. And his judgment is perfect. So yes, God is love. But God's love does not negate all of the other attributes of God. God's love works in balance. With all of the other attributes of God. It never contradicts his holiness. Therefore, when sin takes place, it violates the holiness of God. And God doesn't go, oh, that's okay, I'm just love. God's love should never be interpreted as tolerance for unrighteousness. Because it is not. God's love works with his righteousness, with his holiness, with his justice, and with his judgment. And if it didn't, God could never be righteous, holy, and just. If God were totally tolerant of all behaviors, because supposedly God is love, it would invalidate, and I'll tell you what, he would be a wicked God. He would be a wicked God because he could be as much to blame by tolerating wickedness. He could be, as the law calls, a co-conspirator. And we know that that's not the God we serve. So what does this agape love look like? How is it defined? Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates. Stop right there. God demonstrates. That means to put on to display. God establishes. God demonstrates his own love. There is the word agape. It's used in the noun form. It is the thing. It is love. God demonstrates. He establishes his love. His own love. Toward us, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There seems to be contradictions in that verse. God establishes his love, He, he demonstrates his love. To whom? To the righteous? To the religious, to the pious? No. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, rebels, we were violating and breaking the law of God. We were at war with God. We were at enmity with God. We were striving against God. We were saying, no, God, I will do it my way. I will not submit to you. My heart bleeds many times when I hear people talk about salvation as if it's impunity. It's just, hey, I'll live the way I want. I'll do the things I want. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what's being taught. That's not salvation. There was an old cult many years ago. It was called antinomianism. It was like, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you live. All you got to make sure is, you know, you're right with God. Paul tells us that the love of God was demonstrated by Christ dying for sinners. In Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. Paul says this, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. And I love this second part. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means that God... Poured out his love upon us, not based on what we did, but according to his mercy, another attribute of God. And consistent with many other attributes of mercy and grace, Paul tells us that this agape love of God, which originated with God, is defined by God. He showcased that love to undeserving, unloving, hell-bound sinners. Hey, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what you were before you were a follower of Jesus Christ. You were unloving, you were unmerciful, you were at enmity, you were striving against God. But what did God do with that? He showcased His love in His Son. Publicly for all the world to see. It is this love that God demonstrates, and this just blows me away, where God withholds his justice that is rightly due. He withholds it. He doesn't bring it down. What does the Bible say the wages of sin is? It's death. What are wages? Wages is what you get paid after you work, right? You work a week, you get a paycheck. Those paychecks are your wages for your work. So it is that which is due to you for what you did. Paul says the wages of sin is death. Let me put it a simpler way. What does sin pay? Not $15 an hour. It pays death. And so death is a result of sin. And yet look what God does. He withholds his rightful authority to bring his justice and his judgment. Very popular question in the world is if there is a God, why does he allow good people to suffer? I don't make light of that. I think that's a very legit question. Why does God allow good people to suffer? I've had people say to me time and time again, what about the guy walking around somewhere in a foreign land who was born and raised, never heard the gospel, is a good person, never does anything wrong. You know, he, he's, he, he gives his coconut to someone else to share, and he does all these other good things. What about him, heaven or hell? I said, well, that person will go to heaven. They look at me, they go, really? I go, yeah. And there's a problem. What's the problem? That person doesn't exist. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3, 9 and 10. There is none that doeth good. All have sinned. All of the human race is infected with sin. All of us have rebelled and turned. And yet, look at the mercy of God. The most ardent atheist, the most ardent hater of God, The very one who stands and blasphemes God day after day, curses the name of God, curses the Holy Spirit, and yet God in His grace and mercy withholds that justice. God could come down and smite Him at the moment, and God yet withholds. The answer isn't, why does he allow good people to suffer? The answer isn't, why doesn't a good, holy God just bring judgment the moment any one of us sin? And that is the truth. That's a key Christian doctrine called forbearance. God forbears. He doesn't render to us. You're driving in your car, someone cuts you off, and you go off on a tirade against them, pulling up, I'll punch you in the nose, I'll do this, swearing and cursing, right? In that moment, in that second, you're violating the law of God, you're violating the Ten Commandments, yet God does not bring judgment upon you in that moment. He forbears. And what does the Word of God say? The Word of God said, God is not slack concerning judgment, but is patient that all would come to repentance and faith. Therein lies the heart of God. Therein lies the love of God. God's love is such that all would come to repentance and faith. But I'm going to tell you something. Because He is an omniscient God, He knows all will not come to repentance and faith. But His heart is that it would. So He forbears And listen, don't ever let the forbearance of God escape the fact that there is a day coming when all are going to give an account. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul says. We will stand there and give an account for the things done in the flesh. Jeremiah 17.10 says this, For I, the Lord, know the heart, and I render to all men according to their deeds the question for all of us is, in which righteousness will we stand? Will we stand in a righteousness derived of our own? Well, Lord, you know, I came prepared here on Judgment Day, and I'd like to start with my first good thing I did back in 1958. And, Lord, I helped an old lady across the street, and I went to church 4,895. No. In what righteousness shall we stand in our deeds? We just read that Paul said that God saved us not according to deeds which we have done in righteousness. In what righteousness shall we stand? There's only one righteousness that will enable us to stand. That is the righteousness found only in Jesus Christ. It is the imputed righteousness of God given to us by the atoning death of Christ on the cross. It comes to us from repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith faith alone, in God alone. Scripture has all authority alone. And only God, only God gets all the glory alone. How wonderful is this that we the guilty go free while the innocent paid the price. How undeserved is this love of God in light of that, therefore, God has chosen, listen to this, God is chosen in his providence and sovereignty to pour out his love in a sinful world that does not deserve it. This is the agape love of God. And this is demonstrated, by the way. This is revealed in God's character in several ways. And one of, it, one of those ways is what we call his common grace. His common grace, that God reveals His mercy and His goodness to all people. Look at Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Word of God reads, The Lord, Yahweh, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. Notice the next words. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are all over his works. Matthew 5, 44 to 45. The words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 44 to 45 reads as follows. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Note what Jesus says next. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. God extends his love, his mercy, his common grace to all. God summons all to Christ in repentance and faith through the gospel. God's love is repeated through his warnings and calls for those to repent. Hey, the saved farmer receives the same rain that the unsaved farmer receive. The unbeliever breathes the same oxygen that the believer does. The government that we live under, the society protects both the believer and the unbeliever, although that's kind of changing a little bit, but I won't get into that. God extends His common grace all over His creation. Hey, the verse that we all know so well, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the verse that I mentioned to you previously before, Second Peter three nine. This Lord is not slow regarding his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We see that God has even a greater love, an abundant love, an overwhelming love, for those who are his own, the elect of God, the saved of God, the redeemed of God. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians two verses four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which He loved us, I want you to underline that or highlight that verse. You see, in John three sixteen, God so loved the world. But here in Ephesians two four. Paul talks about a great love that God has. But God being rich in mercy because of his great for which he loved us. Us is the church. It's the believers in Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward who? Toward us in Christ Jesus. Hey, if you are in Christ, God had a great love for you. A great love for you. He has a great love for you and me. A love that he chose on his part preferentially toward those who would come to faith in Christ Jesus. In what way did God love? Let's answer that question. By having mercy on all the world, calling men and women to repentance through the gospel, saving some, and demonstrating His mercy, forbearance, and love to a sinful world. That's how God loved. Let's look at the second question. In what way is the love of God manifested in believers? Look at verse 9 of 1 John 4. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. So the first thing we say is, what does John mean when he states that the love of God was manifested in us? That word manifested means to be illuminated. To, made, to be made visible. To make plain. To put, to put it in open view for everyone to see. Notice that John says the love of God was manifested in us. Again, the us are the believers in Christ. They are the followers in Christ. The love of God has been made visible, has been made plain, has been made open. In who? In believers. In believers, the love of God has been made manifest. It's interesting, in this verse, the verb that is used in the sense that is in made known, it, is, it means that it is demonstrable, demonstrative, that it is visible, that it is apparent. Think about that for a moment. The love of God is made apparent in believers. There's no room for a believer to be bitter. There's no room for a bitter to be angry. There is no room for a believer to be vindictive, cruel, or mean. Because John said, the love of God, the agape love of God, the ability of God to be able to prefer to love us, therefore we prefer to love others. And the agape love of God is manifest, it's visible in us. Look at verse 9 again. By this the love of God was manifested manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we too might live through him. And we see this. The point that John is making is this. The love of God is in, is in believers is visible through the new birth. The love of God reveals itself. How does it reveal itself? Well, primarily in two ways. One, John states that the love of God was made visible and demonstrated on the cross through the atoning death of Christ. John tells us in his gospel in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He demonstrated it. Why did Christ come to earth? He was the embodiment of God's love. He was full of grace and truth of the Father. He came from the Father and therefore He is full of that grace and truth. So it is revealed to us first. But second, the love of God is revealed in the believer's forgiveness of sin and the believer's submission. Don't lose this now. The believer's submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. First John 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 2.5 But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has been perfected. And John, just to settle some curiosity, adds these words to the end of that verse. By this we know that we are in Him. By what? By the obedience and the love of God may manifest in the believer. John MacArthur says this. I love this thing. The Apostle John's admonition is a solemn reminder that a mere pretension of faith in Christ is worthless. Worthless. Genuine faith will inevitably be shown by love. It'll be shown by love. After all, real faith works through love. As a matter of fact, he references Galatians 5, 6, which says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither is circumcision or uncircumcision means of anything, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. I think the most honest question that any person can ever ask themselves is this. Do I really love God? Do I really love Him? Then there's a second question. And the second question is, how is that love made evident in my life? God had a burden for the lost. Do you have a burden for the lost? God had a burden for the lonely. Do you have a burden for the lonely? God has a burden for the church. Do you have a burden for the church? As a matter of fact, the Holy Bride of Christ? Christ had a burden for holiness. Do you have a burden for holiness? Christ had a burden for righteousness. Do you have a burden for righteousness? Christ had a burden for obedience. He learned things by his trials and his sufferings. Do you have a burden for obedience? What means more to us than Christ? That's an idol. And you cannot serve two masters. Either you will serve one and hate the other, or vice versa. This is a question that needs to be asked in the church. True faith in Christ reveals the love of God that has been shed abroad in our heart. We saw that last week in Romans 5.5. You don't have to turn there where Paul says the love of God has been poured out, or as the King James says, has been shed abroad in our hearts. And what that literally means, shed abroad, it means it's dumped. I was sharing with Brother Ricky this week. I have this image of me laying down in a dump truck coming up. And on the dump truck is the love of God and it backs up and I hear beep, beep, beep and then the back goes up and here comes the love of God cascading down on me. I know you felt that if you were ever in Christ. I know that the first time you ever came to faith in Jesus Christ, through true repentance and true faith, you felt that cascading, that dump of the love of God being poured out through the person of the Holy Spirit. And one of the most consistent themes in this this epistle is that genuine faith demonstrates deep and abiding, and note these words, love for God. A love for God. Let me show you a few things. Go back to chapter 3. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. And we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren and he who does not love does not abide in death. Look at verses 16 through 18. And we know, love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Look at verses 23. And 25. And this is his commandment that we believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So to recap. This agape love of God is demonstrated two ways. On the cross, through Christ's death and resurrection, and secondly, in the believer's life of faith, demonstrated through love. Let's answer the third question. How did God love believers? Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Remember in the beginning, I told you this is like climbing a mountain, right? And I think in verse 7, we reached certain heights. In verse 8, we went up a little higher. In verse 9, we got a little bit higher. Now we're standing at the point where we could see the summit. We have a beautiful view right in front of us. We're saying, oh, we're almost to the top. We're almost to the top. And while we're standing here, the view is startling. This love of God which we learned last week, which originated with God, which was defined by God, which is consistent with all His other attributes, which was shed abroad, which was dumped into our hearts, and has been manifested on the cross by Christ, is not in response to anything in us or anything that we have done. What we see here is preferential love of God. What we see here is God clearly, unilaterally choosing to love. John states clearly. Not that we love God. But what? But that He loved us. I want to stop here. If you understand this point, you're going to get the gospel. You're going to get it the way it was intended to be. Stop here and contemplate what John just said as we stand near the summit of this study of God's love, as we're, we're almost at the apex, we're almost at the highest point we can get to, you must stand in awe in a moment and in amazement of that statement. All of our supposed goodness, all of our supposed morality, all of our ethics, all of our kindness, all of our religious works, all of our political views, all of our knowledge of Scripture and and consistency in religious practice, and everything good we can think of did not influence God's love toward the believer. How can that be? How can that be? Doesn't God know that I'm a good person? You mean all of my goodness had nothing to do with God loving me and casting his love upon me and choosing me? That is precisely what John means. Precisely. His words are clear and direct. Not that we love God. We have this great love for him. And then God said, oh, he loves me so much, I think I'm going to pour my love out upon him. No. That is inconsistent with scriptural truth. 1 John 4.19 even echoes this. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. This is a unilateral love of God To the believer. Unilateral. Initiated by Him, secured by Him, wrought about by Him, drawn by Him. It's all God. This love of God is shed abroad completely and preferentially on His part. We did not have this great affection for God that was sealed by our decision. I made my decision. Instead, the scripture tells us that we were striving against him, at enmity with him. We're at enemies of God and needed to be reconciled. And how did God love the believer? John states it, verse 10, that he, he is God, Love, that's the verb form for the word agape, so it's agapao, so that he loved, and of course, agapao agapao is God's preferential love. He, God, loved us. And that verb tense, by the way, grammatically, that verb tense signifies a unilateral action. It was done by one party, not by both parties. God preferred to love. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but for me, that blows me away. Because for me, I'm not deserving of any kind of love. I'm deserving of discipline. I'm deserving of judgment. I'm not ashamed to say it. When that verb is used of God, it refers to God's divine choice in love. His divine choice in love. That God preferred to love, that God took, listen, God took pleasure in loving us. God took pleasure in loving sinners. He took personal pleasure in that. God longs to love His beloved, the elect, the saved of God. Listen. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have been born again, if you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ, if you're sealed with the Holy Spirit as, as evidenced by that salvation, you can know with absolute confidence God has chosen, God has preferred to love you with an everlasting love. I don't know how we're not all doing backflips. That love is demonstrated inwardly in the believer by having peace with God. Oh, peace with God. God. Do you know what the number one cause of death be for people between 12 and 25 is in the United States? Suicide. Suicide. People as young as 12 years old are finding no reason to live. Young people, 21, who should just be starting their life are killing themselves at record paces. And yet, for all who come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can know peace with God. Listen, don't take my word. Listen to the scripture. Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you. Listen to the words of God. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have drawn you in loving kindness. Psalm 103, 17. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to a children's children. Isaiah, I love this verse in Isaiah. You want to write down this verse, verse. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Listen to the heart of God. Listen to the love of God. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. How did God love believers? With a preferential love toward the believers that pleased God to do so with a divine choice that God initiated in love, with a pleasurable love to ransom and save believers, with a sacrificial love that gave his only begotten son to make atonement for sin and satisfy the justice of God. You understand While I say we're, we're almost at the summit? And What do you see? You see things that are indescribable. Lastly, how should believers respond to this love? Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John clearly states what believers' response to this great love of God should be. He uses the word ought. That word in the Greek takes a meaning that you're morally obligated. It's a term to use to say you're you're morally obligated to fulfill an oath or an obligation. John is saying, hey, if God loved us in this matter, we ought to love one another. We are obligated by that love of Christ. Listen, Christianity isn't a solo sport. It's a team sport. And we are to love one another. We are to esteem each other as greater than ourselves. We are to have compassion upon our brothers and sisters. Today we see brothers and sisters who are not here among us, some of whom are sick, some are here that aren't here for various reasons. What is our response to those? Do we love them? Do we go after them? Do we understand if there's a particular need? Having been shown the amazing love of God, the preferential love of God, the deliberate love of God, John tells believers that we are to love as God has demonstrated to us, sacrificially. We are to love in an amazing, deliberate, and preferential way. We are to love the brothers and sisters in the church in that manner. And we are most like God when we love like god first john four fourteen says this and we have come to know and have believed the love which god has for us god is love and the one who abides in love abides in god and god abides in him man there's no mixed metaphors there is there if believers have come to know god god love abides in them And when used in the context of the believer, this agape love is is defined by embracing God's will. Therefore, we also ought to love God as he has loved us. So what does this have to do with me? Let's let's cut to the quick here. What's this have to do with me? That's the see, I know you're all sitting there going, shut up already. What does this have to do with me? I'm going to tell you. A.W. Toza says this, The love of God is one of the great realities of the universe, a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests. But it is personal, intimate thing too. God does not love populations. He loves people. He loves not masses, but men. And he loves us all with a mighty love that has no beginning and can have no end. Brothers and sisters, let us love each other as God in Christ has loved us us let us prefer each other sacrifice for each other let us be inconvenienced for each other and be available for each other let the world see god's love manifesting in this church through us and our love for each other and let our god and our savior be glorified exalted praised honored and may many 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 people be drawn to Jesus Christ as a result of that great love. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer.